occasionally um, I can't find my glasses anywhere, and it's because I'm already wearing them. They were hidden in plain sight. Uh, that's the best, in fact, it's, it's actually, actually it's the only example of something being hidden in plain sight that I can think of, or that I could think of when I was writing this sermon. The phrase, hidden in plain sight, is used in a variety of ways and has been borrowed for various films and television series over the years. But the phrase, hiding in plain sight, is always best illustrated by something that we can't see because it is exactly how it ought to be or where it ought to be, but somehow we assume that it isn't there. Um, at home, uh, Joe and I are often puzzled by how often we find things that are missing precisely where they ought to be. And we have a phrase uh, used to describe um, when uh, something is uh, lost but actually staring us in the face or precisely <clears throat> where it ought to be, yet we've searched for it, uh, that is a boy search. Well, uh, we are reading together Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, that is to say the first of the two letters that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And this morning we read chapter 2, verses 6 to 16 on page uh, 924. Um, last week we saw that the church in Corinth was in serious trouble. It was split and divided into various factions. That factionalism, that divisiveness that was present there with people splitting into opposing groups, that was the presenting problem, but in a sense it wasn't the true problem. It was a symptom of the true problem. They were focusing on key leaders and seemingly flocking to the leader that they thought was right. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Christ. But that was a symptom. The, the real problem, Paul tells us, is that whilst they might know quite a bit about Jesus, and they did, they did know a lot about Jesus, and indeed they seem to have been a theologically and biblically sophisticated bunch, well-informed, and a church we know that was hungry for knowledge and thought that knowledge was a really good thing, um, they're, not, they're not uninformed. But they don't understand the cross that the cross is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. Uh, Paul wrote back in chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And a little bit later, uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and following, Jews demand signs and Greeks Look for wisdom. And that's right when it comes to power. When it comes to the power of God, the Jews think of mighty miracles, awesome displays of natural or supernatural power, the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and on Egypt, Elijah calling down fire upon the sacrifice, great signs of power. When it comes to power, the Greeks look for wisdom transformative ideas that give them the power to harness life and to get the most out of it, um, to put life in our service. Mathematics, geometry, eureka, philosophy, 
logic, rhetoric. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To the Jews, of course, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a blasphemous outrage. Um, a, a cursed anointed one? It's a scandal. It's something that would not, could not compute. To the Gentiles, to the Greeks and the Romans, that is, the lowest place in society, the lowest rung on the honor-shame ladder of life belonged to the naked, crucified criminal. You just couldn't get lower than that. And so then the idea of a crucified God, the idea of, of a son of God naked on the cross, it was a disgusting, revolting, obscene idea. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, um, Paul appealed in explaining this um, to the principle of inversion, um, something that you encounter, inversion, turning things upside down, something that you encounter again and again and again in the stories of the Old Testament, that at the cross, God turned the universe upside down, verses 27 and following. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Inversion. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Inversion. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Inversion. So that no one may boast before him. Now, um, the Corinthians, they did know um, that the cross of Christ was the means by which they were forgiven. Jesus died on the cross in order to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve, in order that we might be righteous, in order that, that we might receive what he, what he earned, that, that we might be in right relationship with God when we put our faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. The cross is God's salvation. They, they knew that. But it is also God's wisdom and his strength. Where does true power reside in this world? It resides in forgiving, forgiving enemies, blessing those who curse us. It resides in sacrificial love. It resides in putting the welfare of others ahead of your own, even if necessary unto death. Actually, that's where true power resides. The cross is the event, but it is also the method. It is the culture. It is the benchmark. It is the litmus test. It is the thing against which everything else will be measured. The cross is where true power resides, where true wisdom lives. And in the words of a friend of mine, the cross is God inside out, the invisible God made utterly visible. In our text today, 
Paul tells us in essence that God hid his gospel in plain sight and revealed it by his spirit. The outworking of God's plan for the nations, the growth of the kingdom of God, it rests upon the finished work of the cross combined with the continuing work of the Holy Spirit. The cross is the most important thing in life to understand. Um, Jesus and the cross. But the cross cannot be understood naturally. That is to say, normal people do not understand the cross. To Jews, it's heresy. To Gentiles, it's wet, pathetic, stupid. And although they don't understand it, they don't understand that they don't understand it. They think they understand it and believe that in rejecting it, they're right because it's dumb. And even though the entire Old Testament preaches Christ and Christ crucified, the nation of Israel didn't get it. They had no idea what Jesus meant when he said that he had to die, had to suffer, had to be rejected, had to rise again in accordance with the scriptures and all that the prophets had written. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have, couldn't have crucified him. God hid his plan in plain sight. It's all there, but none of us could see it. But he has revealed it to his children. He has revealed to his children that it was his plan all along. He has revealed it to his children for their glory. Um, uh, what glory that, they, that the children understand. Um, what glory when, when all the smart folk, when all the wise folk, uh, when all the well-dressed and well-educated folk don't get it. What glory that the children of God do get it. How is it that the children of God do get it? How is it that they understand the cross? Paul gives us the answer, it's by the Spirit. The cross, the cross of Christ, gives God, legally speaking, the license to pour out his Holy Spirit in unbounded measure upon whomsoever he desires. And as the Spirit comes upon people, they understand who Jesus is and they understand about the cross. The Spirit of God has access to everywhere within God, knowing God's most intimate and innermost thoughts, just as your spirit knows your thoughts and the workings of your innermost heart. So to have the Spirit is to have the thoughts of God, which is the mind of Christ. Along the way, Paul has appealed to two Old Testament texts in his explanation. Both texts magnify the unpredictability of God. Nobody guessed this. Nobody imagined it. Nobody predicted his saving work for the nations. No one ever advised him or gave him a recommended course of action. It took everybody by surprise. He hid it in plain sight. And God's wisdom is then a verdict of judgment upon human wisdom. Um, when I say human wisdom, not meaning that, that um, we're incapable of working out anything on our own, not meaning that, you know, human wisdom, not meaning that mathematics is evil. 
um, or being anti-intellectual, but, but rather human wisdom, what Paul might call worldly wisdom, the idea, the project of humanity, the idea that God actually can be forgotten, ignored, disobeyed, or perhaps just kept happy with random tokens, whilst we get on with the project of glorifying ourselves, that wisdom God now reveals through the cross to be utterly futile, banal, and stupid. The verdict of judgment of God on human wisdom is brought by the cross. And so Paul writes in verse 13, This is what we speak, not in words, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Or to put that perhaps more woodenly, and what we are speaking is not words from the teachings of human wisdom, but rather by the teachings of the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things spiritually. The, the Christians in Corinth, they were spiritual. Um, they had the Holy Spirit, otherwise they, they couldn't be Christians. They definitely have the Holy Spirit, but in their thinking they're still using and depending upon the old ways of thinking in negotiating their new Christian faith. Um, that doesn't mean they're not Christians, it just means they're childish as Christians. This is the immaturity of their faith. And so to Paul's conclusion... The person who has the Spirit is fully able to make up their own minds about anything and everything. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter. You don't need any of them. You can make up your own mind. And such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, or the spiritual person is not judged by anyone. The spiritual person knows that it doesn't matter what others think. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. Paul's words today um, are astonishing in their implications. They help us to understand many things about ourselves and our place in the world. Um, I'd just like to talk very briefly about how Paul's words today can help us to understand four things. Conversions, the Bible, decision-making, and ministry. Firstly, conversions. When I first became a Christian, I worked in the world of science. And I was surrounded by fellow scientists. Many of them were, of course, also Christians, but most weren't. I soon found myself in conversation with non-Christians about the Christian faith. This person or that person would tell me why they weren't a Christian. I'd hear this objection or that objection. What about other religions? What, what about all the suffering in the world? Yeah, you can't trust the New Testament. It's not historical. Oh, the apostles, they, they were deluded or dangerous or both. Or hypocrites. No, no, no rational person can believe in the supernatural. No modern thinker can believe in miracles. Maybe you've heard many of those objections yourself. Now, even as a new Christian, I thought I had some pretty good answers to those objections. And if perhaps one of those objections took me by surprise, I knew where to go in order to find good answers. And so time after time, person after person, I answered objection after objection. And I found my answers pretty convincing. 
And I believe that most of the time, some of my hearers were also surprised at how convincing my answers were. But to my surprise and disappointment, I usually found that if I answered one objection, another one sprang up in its place. And for some of these friends, as perhaps we spent years in the same lab, objection followed objection with no indication that that person was any closer to a living faith in Jesus Christ at the end as they'd been at the beginning. still in the same place. What was happening here? Well, they didn't understand because they couldn't understand. Now, as scientists, um, we were intellectual people, and intellectual sinners have intellectual objections to the gospel, just as emotive or associative people have emotive or associative objections to the gospel. I can't believe in a God who'd send people to hell. If God were real, he'd do something about my suffering, etc., etc., But one of the things I didn't really understand was that there's no evangelism without prayer. I'm not saying I didn't pray for my friends. I I did. But I didn't fully get that without the Spirit, they would never get it. I ought to have spent more time praying and less time trying to win arguments. My friends didn't understand because they couldn't understand, and they will never understand, except for God. Some thoughts about conversion. Secondly, the Bible. Uh, Paul, in his words uh, that we've read today, has told us how to interpret his teachings, his words. These things are spirit, and they are spiritually discerned. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't get Paul. Um, I find it interesting uh, that in uh, theological circles, uh, in some of the places I find myself, um, lots of people give themselves the latitude to hate Paul and to criticize him and to label him with all kinds of nasty names. When they do that, they're behaving like Corinthians who think that the right way of measuring Paul's wisdom is against the wisdom of this age. It's a shame, because a sizable portion of God's word to us comes through Paul. But Paul himself tells us not to do that. We interpret spiritually spiritual things spiritually, which means prayerfully in conversation with Jesus Christ. And in telling us how to interpret him, he actually tells us how to interpret anything and everything we find in the Bible. Spiritually. In other words, prayerfully, in conversation with Jesus Christ. Now, many Christians, many Christians, and I think most non-Christians, assume that God wants us to obey the Bible. Um, That belief that God wants us to obey the Bible gets turned into slogans from time to time. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But such rigid, literalistic fundamentalism builds nothing much more than a reactionary drawbridge culture to which all outsiders, meaning anyone who doesn't interpret Scripture like I do, all outsiders are an enemy. 
But God does not want us to obey the Bible. Rather, the Bible wants us to obey Jesus. God does not want us to obey the Bible. Rather, the Bible wants us to obey Jesus. The two things are not wholly unrelated. Indeed, they are intimately related. The Bible reveals the mind of God in Christ Jesus. It is the Word of God. But the distinction is critical. The point of Bible reading is not to grow in our obedience to the Scriptures, but rather to get to know God better, to hear His voice for ourselves, to proceed in faith, and to serve Him as best we can, living life in His sight, in His presence. And we cannot understand the Bible. Uh, the Bible will always be a mystery to us. Actually, worse, the Bible will be an ancient and archaic book of nonsense full of contradictions, disgusting bigotry, anachronisms, and hate speech, not to mention genocide. We cannot understand the Bible except that we know Jesus Christ and he explains it to us. We cannot understand it except that the Spirit transforms it, opening blind eyes, unplugging ears. And suddenly, suddenly, with the Spirit, it is transformed into a living love letter to us, to me, to you, from the Creator of the universe, who is vastly bigger, vastly more awesome, and vastly more beautiful than the universe he has created. Um, at her coronation... Queen Elizabeth II was handed a copy of the Bible. And she was told, this is the most precious thing this world affords. Materially speaking, that, that is of course correct. To those who know Christ, to those who have the Spirit, to those who read the Bible regularly, carefully, prayerfully, asking for understanding, the Bible is a sustaining revolution empowering change, transforming everything. Some words about decisions and decision-making. We have the mind of Christ. You may have already noticed, or you may, it may have already been pointed out to you um, by someone, how in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, the very first chapter, we have the disciples in the upper room. They draw lots to decide the will of God, who will occupy the position of leadership vacated by Judas Iscariot. The drawing of lots was divination. Divination is using some physical thing like straws in a hand or a flipped coin or um, ballot balls in a bag using some random machine in order to determine the will of God, that is to say, what we shall do. Divination is common in the Old Testament, but after the drawing of lots in Acts chapter 1, divination disappears from the Bible forever. And that's because in Acts chapter 2, we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit given to all believers, to all the disciples. We have the mind of Christ. Divination is inappropriate. We don't need it. 
we have the mind of Christ. James writes, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The, the wisdom might be given to us by way of uh, Bible reading, conversation with others, experience, open doors, closed doors, circumstances. The wisdom might be given uh, um, in reflection of, on the desires of our own hearts or good old-fashioned common sense. But the wisdom we desire from God will be given to us when we need it and when we ask God. We have the Spirit and the Spirit knows the intimate thoughts of God, and he shares them with us. If you need wisdom from God about an important decision, ask God and then don't doubt, not for a minute, as to whether you'll get it. Um, I've, I've discovered over the years that if you want to hear from God, there is no better prayer than, what do you think about this? Uh, God is generous and he loves being consulted. Ministry. We have the mind of Christ. Paul's confidence before a difficult church, ridden with factionalism, Paul's confidence is in two things. Firstly, the finished work of uh, uh, God at the cross. And secondly, the continuing work of God through the Holy Spirit. This confidence should be our confidence when we're doing ministry too. We speak plainly about God, Jesus, and the Bible. We know that we might get ridiculed. We know that we might be considered heretics or just plain pathetic or ridiculous. But we speak plainly about what the Bible teaches. We believe that God will indeed be speaking through us. And we pray that God will open up hearts to receive his word. We trust in the finished work of God at the cross and the continuing work of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. His spirit is with us. The Lord be with you all.